So we are in this series throughout the summer going through the letter to the Ephesians. And if you were here with us last week, you might remember that I told you the second half of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter four through six, that in these three chapters, Paul's gonna get really personal. I'm gonna step on some toes. I told you last week, he has a lot to say about, about anger, about sex, about marriage, about parenting, about the way employers treat their employees. He has a lot to say about our work ethic Money, truth-telling, kindness, and on and on and on. What I didn't tell you last week is that most of that is gonna happen today in the passage that we're about to read. So I wanna let Paul do a lot of the talking. We're gonna read a lot of scripture today um, so you can be mad at him, not me. Um, and along the way, uh, I'll interrupt. We'll try to help with some context, context to see how we can apply all this. Uh, it's gonna seem like we're covering a lot of issues today, and we are, that's what Paul does. That's what the scripture does, and our job is to be faithful to that, to follow it, and then to figure out how it might transform our lives. So we'll start in Ephesians 4. This is verse 17. I'll just read 17 through 19 to start. So I say this and insist in the Lord that you no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their hearts. Because they are callous, they have given themselves over to indecency for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. Okay, the good news is coming, I promise. But this is the word of the Lord. And thanks be to God. So I wanna show you right away that Paul does something really interesting. It's something that would have really caught his audience off guard. They would have been really surprised to hear this. And it's something that's often missed by modern readers if we don't keep in mind the context of the entire letter. So he says this right off the bat, I insist in the Lord that you no longer live as the Gentiles do. Okay, that's it, surprise. <laughs> that, that's the surprising thing. Okay, why is that the surprising thing? Well, if you remember back a couple weeks ago when Sabrina started to preach in Ephesians chapter three, that chapter starts like this. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of who? You Gentiles. And then just a chapter earlier in chapter two, verse 11, he says, therefore, remember that formerly you who are what? Gentiles by birth. Who are these Ephesians that Paul is speaking to? It's not a trick question, you know the answer. Who are they? They're Gentiles, that's right. Now look, in another letter, Paul is gonna have a lot to say about these divisions, right? About Jew and Gentile, male and female. But for our context today, Gentile is just the Bible's way of referring to anybody who's not a Jew, okay? So do you see the surprising thing? I insist in the Lord that you no longer live as the Gentiles. And what do you think went right through their minds when they first heard it? Dude, we're Gentiles. <laughs> what do you expect us to do? So he goes on to explain what he means. The Gentiles that Paul is speaking of, he describes them. He says they're those who are separated from God, not because they're stupid. When he uses the word ignorant, that doesn't mean stupid. It doesn't mean that they're less than anyone. 
but they are ignorant of God. They don't know God. That's all the word ignorant means, lacking knowledge. They don't know God. Now he says that that happened by their choice, that they decided to guard their hearts, to harden their hearts, denying God entry into their lives, denying God's lordship over their lives. You see, the problem is that Paul and Jesus and y'all, the rest of scripture, it's just really clear that there are certain things in this life that we're just not supposed to do. There's certain things that are just wrong. And Paul is saying that in their ignorance of God and their lack of knowledge of God, the Gentiles, they have come to believe that the things scripture says we are not to do, they've come to believe it's okay. Maybe it's even good. <laughs> that what scripture condemns, they have come to affirm or even celebrate. And I could list one or two things for you just in our cultural context, but I'm not gonna do that because I wouldn't wanna limit that list to those one or two things. The list of things that God prohibits that we can convince ourselves are actually not only permissible but good, that list can be really long. So any person who is ignorant of the knowledge of God, they can easily then mistake themselves for a God, right? For a little G God. That they are the one who gets to define what's good and what's evil, what's right and what's wrong. And when that happens, they just become okay with things that scripture says simply aren't okay. Now remember, who is Paul talking to? He's writing to Gentile Christians living in Ephesus. He writes this letter written to the church to be read in the context of worship. So we have to be really careful not to assume that he's only talking about people in the outside world. Because to one extent or another, we all at times mistake ourselves for little g gods. We all take opportunities to decide for ourselves what's right and wrong, to define good and evil. If he has to remind them not to live this way anymore, how are these Ephesian Christians most likely living? So we're gonna see the details of that when we get to verse 25, but let's keep on reading. This is verse 20. He says, however, that is not the way of life that you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Now that language might seem a little weird. The NIV, it says to put off your old self, sorry, to put off your old self. Um, it can be phrased a bunch of ways. In the Greek, you could say, take off the old man. <laughs> another way you could, another literal way you could say this is disrobe the old man, which I wrote. And then at the eight o'clock service, surrounded by a bunch of older people, I realized that that sounds very inappropriate. <laughs> but but, you, but you, you know what we mean. Take off the old man and put on the new man or more literally, be clothed in the new human. He uses this language on purpose. This language is meant to be visual. 
It's meant to make you think of taking off one set of clothes and putting on something new. So how many of you used to dress like weird? Anybody? Like most generations, we'll go through a little phase where maybe as an act of rebellion, we'll dress a little differently from our parents, right? So any, any former hippies in the room? Come on, raise your hand, be brave. Yup, Kim on Thursday told me that he was, he even sent me a picture. Uh, for me in the 80s and 90s, it was punk, it was preppies, it was grunge kids. We all, everybody kind of goes through this. Except I actually have learned over the weekend that not every generation does go through this. Uh, Jennifer, she loves watching these. I love watching with my wife uh, these documentaries about Walt Disney and about Disney World. I mean, it's interesting. Okay, but she really loves watching these. So we're watching one the other day and it was not shocking, I I should have known this, but it was interesting to see that on opening day of Disneyland, July 17th, 1955, in Southern California, now granted, it's not Texas hot, but it's still hot, right? What was everybody wearing? Suits and dresses. Even the little kids, as they're getting ready to go on the teacup ride and throw up all over themselves. They're wearing suits and dresses. So not every generation has done this, but that generation, their kids did, <laughs> and that's some of you. So uh, I, I wanna let you know, um, my email address is uh, chad at firstpresskingwood.org. So please feel free, email me any of these weird and embarrassing photos. Um, I would just love to get, you know, to get to know you better. I promise I won't post them, uh, but I'm more than happy to see what you look like in your younger days. But Aside from that, what happens like when you get married or more importantly, like when you get your first real job, right? You get rid of the bell bottoms, you get rid of the preppy pink polo, you get rid of the flannel shirt and the ripped shorts and you put on something a little more professional. Like as our life situation changes, we begin to dress accordingly. I mean, most of us. (laughs) But y'all, Paul doesn't care about your clothes. He is using this language to make a much deeper point. Like, it's not that you're starting a new job and you need to dress like it. He's saying that you are now in Christ. You are a new human. So it's time to live like it. And with that, now he's starting to get really personal. Remember, he's writing to Christians. He's writing to the church. This was first heard, the first time anybody heard this was in the context of worship. And this is what he says, verse 25. So stop telling lies. Let us tell our neighbors the truth, for we are all part of the same body. And don't sin by letting anger control you. Don't let the sun go down while you're still angry, for anger gives a foothold to the devil. If you are a thief, Quit stealing. Instead, use your hands for good work and then give generously to those in need. Don't use foul or abusive language. Let everything you say be good and helpful so that your words will be an encouragement to those who hear them. Is he just talking to the outside world? He's actually not talking to them at all. 
Now, these four verses, they tell us a lot about what was going on in the church in Ephesus. By their very presence, we can see some of the issues that church was dealing with. Christians lying to one another and to their neighbors. Christians acting out in uncontrolled anger toward one another and their neighbors. Christians stealing from one another and their neighbors. Christians being verbally abusive toward one another and their neighbors. These are what one author, he refers to them as the sins of speech. That Paul makes other lists like this in other letters. But here he's focused on our sins of speech. And we don't have to go any further than Jesus himself to understand why this matters. Why our words, why these sins of speech matter, why they're actually a sign that something deeper is really going on. In Matthew 15, uh, Jesus is being confronted by some religious leaders, by teachers of the law. They come to criticize him and his disciples. Uh, They criticize them all the time for a lot of things, right? By the time we get to Matthew 15, Uh, they're criticizing them for not washing their hands before dinner. (laughs) Now, that mattered religiously in that time, but that's what they're focused on. It would defile you to eat without washing your hands. So as Jesus always does, he replies with the truth in a really uh, cutting and brilliant and hilarious way. Uh, He says this, he says, don't you understand yet? And one translation says, are you still so stupid? And I would argue that's a more accurate translation to the Greek. Anything you eat passes through the stomach and goes into the sewer. But the words you speak come from the heart. That's what defiles you. For from the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, all sexual immorality, theft, lying, and slander. There's a problem in the church in Ephesus. 50 years later, we know from the letter Revelation at the end of scripture, we know that Ephesus continues to struggle with issues of the heart, even at the end of the first century. In that letter, John tells them that you've forsaken the love that you had at first and consider how far you have fallen because of it. So repent and do the things you did at first. They lost their first love. And long before Revelation was ever written, Paul is prophetically pointing this out to them. He's saying, you have an issue of the heart. You're losing the love of Christ that you had at first and your language is giving you away. When we read this and put it in context of then, right? We have to ask, well, what does this mean now? What gives us away? Our words, the way we treat others, outsiders, people who don't agree with us, our anger. You see, even Paul's words about anger in this chapter, they are rooted in these sins of speech. This is from a scholar named John Muddyman. He says, a fit of righteous anger is not necessarily sinful. It's the nursing of angry resentment that is condemned. And I don't know about you, but for me, Nursing angry resentment, it doesn't result in violence. It results in harsh words, in sins of speech that I often very quickly wish that I could take back. 
But once you've said it, you can't unsay it. And I'm really hoping I'm not alone in this. <laughs> like sometimes it, it's for me, it's just dismissive and sarcastic, but sometimes it's offensive and rude. And the hard truth is that it's often directed at the people that I love the most. So Paul, he gives us in this passage really helpful and practical advice about this issue. He says, there's a way to tell if your anger is righteous or if you're just nursing resentment that's gonna lead you to say things you probably didn't mean to say. Don't let the sun go down on it. Right, so he's actually, he's referring to teaching from ancient rabbis. They would say that sunrise to sunset, that's the limit on righteous anger. Because they're trying to help us understand that if our anger about a situation, if it's legitimate, then we are to act and we are to act justly and we are to address it before the day is through, before the sun goes down. That way you can rest well knowing that your anger was used for good, that you fought for things that matter to God, that you used your power on behalf of people who have none. But anything beyond that, anything that extends beyond that, it's nothing more than an opportunity for the enemy to twist you and to turn you from the inside out. It's an invitation to nurse angry resentment. And it almost always leads to these sins of speech. You see, I'm so grateful that Paul, even as he's, <laughs> he's being really direct and stepping on toes, challenging us, that he's also a pastor who's not just here to condemn. He's here to give good guidance. He speaks to our hearts. Like even as he's describing and defining these sins of speech which were alive and well in the church back then, in the church today, he interrupts each one of them with the positive alternative. And the message says it like this. He says, no more lies. Instead, tell your neighbor the truth. In Christ's body, we are all connected to each other. So when you lie to others, you end up doing what? You lie to yourself. He says, did you used to make ends meet by stealing? Well, no more. Get an honest job so that you can help others who can't work. Even that is a sin of speech because oftentimes people will justify stealing by saying words that they need to provide or they can't eat or they can't make ends meet. Saying that's no justification. If you can work, work. And do so that you can help others who can't. Watch the way you talk. Say only what helps. Because every one of your words is a gift. He gives us the good positive alternative. And then he goes on. He continues to speak to the heart even more directly in the last three verses of this chapter. And as I read this, I wanna invite you to, to really listen. Um, I had a meeting with some retired men on Thursday. One of them really helped me see this in a new way. Over the weekend, really coming to believe that this, what I'm about to read is really the centerpiece of these final three chapters in Ephesians. Like I want you to listen for the deeply emotional thing that Paul is saying. Like many of us will say with our mouths that we know that God is love. We know that God is a loving father. But we're often tempted to think of God as distant. 
that God doesn't really care about what I do each and every day, that God's not moved by my behavior. Well, listen, verse 30. Don't grieve God. Don't break his heart. His Holy Spirit moving and breathing in you is the most intimate part of your life, making you fit for himself. Don't take such a gift for granted. Make a clean break with all cutting and backbiting and profane talk. Be gentle with one another, sensitive, forgiving one another as quickly and thoroughly as God in Christ forgave you. Don't grieve God. Don't break his heart. That word for grieve, it is a deeply emotional Greek word. It's used 21 times in the New Testament. 20 of those times in reference to deep human grief to the point that the person is debilitated, unable to move forward. And here and only here, that same exact word is used to describe the internal suffering that God experiences when his children turn away from him. The testimony of scripture, Old and New Testament, God is not distant. He is not unmoved by our actions. He is deeply moved by what his children do. Like those who have been called to be parents. Like obviously we want our kids to be obedient. And, and we hope that they can trust that the rules that we set up for them are for their own good. And when our kids hurt, when they're in pain, we hurt, right? We're in pain. So we set up these guardrails to protect them. And, and we're not perfect, far from it. But most parents are trying really hard not to be arbitrary, but to lovingly care for and protect their, their children. But sometimes, especially when our kids are younger, they don't understand the rules. We hope they trust us, but, you know, they don't. <laughs> and when they break the rules, of course, we get angry and frustrated. But what we really see as, we get, as they get older, um, the idea of them turning away from us as we're sending them out into the world, <laughs> the idea that, that, that they would begin to disobey, that they would begin to knock down the guardrails that we've set up for them for their own good, so that they can prosper in life and in their relationship with God and with others? If that begins to happen, it's not anger, it's not frustration, what is it? It is a deep sadness. Like the idea that our children might fall into reckless behavior, addiction, that they would begin to treat gifts like their sexuality, intimate relationships, that they would begin to treat those casually. It's not anger or frustration, it's a deep sadness because many of us know exactly where those behaviors lead. And it's just not the kind of life that we want for them. It's not the life for which God created them. And the depth of our love and our concern for our kids, y'all, it is just a taste of the depth of God's love and concern for us. God is not distant. He is deeply moved by what we do, by what's happening here. And oftentimes what's happening here, what we say gives it away. 
Like I said last week, these chapters, Ephesians four through six, like man, they can sound intrusive, they can sound overbearing. It can come off like God is demanding specific behaviors so that we can appease his anger. That is not what is happening at all. Just like any protective parent would, God is fighting to keep us on the path that leads to him before we are destroyed by all the powers and the forces that are working against us. Like God knows full well external evils that are waiting to pounce, looking for an opening, shining a hot spotlight on us, inviting us, trying to deceive and manipulate us, to twist us from the inside out, all so that it can just simply tear us away from the love of God. We saw this in Ephesians 2, and we're gonna see it again when we get to chapter six. God knows what we're fighting against, and he's there to protect and to guide. God also knows the internal darkness in me, my tendency to wander, to turn away from him, to turn toward our own desires, our tendency to define for ourselves what is good and what is evil, what's right and what's wrong, depending on the circumstance we find ourselves in. He knows that ignorance of the knowledge of him will lead us to believe that we are little g gods. And can I just tell you that scripture's trying to remind us over and over that we were created to be so much more than some silly little G God. In chapter five, it says this, imitate God in everything you do because you are his dear children. Live a life filled with love following the example of Christ. He loved us and offered himself as a sacrifice for us, a pleasing aroma to God. This this is the message of Ephesians four through six. If you are in Christ, what's true about him is being made true in you. What is true about Jesus is being made real in and through your life, even now. Like Paul is reminding us that we were made to be so much more than just the best me that I can be. That is a deception. That's a unique deception in our culture. Telling our kids to try to just be the best versions of themselves that they can be. The best version of myself is nothing compared to the image of God in which I was made. The image that God is restoring in me. He's reminding me that in every part of this life, everywhere I go, and the ways in which I go there, he's reminding us that we are a physical representation of who God is. And when we do that, when that's happening through us, y'all, that is necessarily really good news for the people around us. It's good news. He's made us to be bearers of his own image. So Paul is telling us to take off the old man and to put on the new one. That new human being the person of Jesus himself. And he's saying that when you actually do that, that everything will change. And we will no longer live as we used to live because we are being made holy. 
sanctified, set apart. We are being made new for his good work. Y'all, this is what it means to be a Christian. The word Christian, do you know where it comes from? In the book of Acts, it's something that the Gentile world called the first followers of Jesus. And do you know why? Because the word in Greek means little Christ. A group of Gentiles observed the church and their reaction was they look like little versions of the Messiah they worship. This is what it means to be a Christian. Does this describe your faith in Jesus? Does this describe your relationship with Jesus? Is your faith in Jesus more than just something you believe intellectually? Do you truly trust him? Are you willing to obey him? Especially when you disagree with him. (laughs) Are you being transformed day by day more and more like him? Not perfect, but more and more. Is the fruit of his spirit growing in and is it on display through you? I know these are hard questions, but if we are going to be clothed in Christ, they're really important ones. The last thing I wanna share, and this will be really quick. There are three stages to this life with God. Three distinct stages that we go through as our relationship with him is restored. The first is justification. We've talked about these before. Justification, it's the moment that the saving work of Christ, it's the moment that that gift is received and made effective in our lives. It's the moment we've been born again, the moment of our salvation. That's over here. The final stage is called glorification. We are being made new. In our glorification, we are made new. We are complete, we are whole. God's image fully restored in us and we are united with him forever. When does that happen? (laughs) Right, that completion doesn't come until after we cross the bridge from this life into life eternal. So in between our justification and our glorification, that's what we call sanctification. It's just a fancy theological word for being made holy. Being made new. It's the daily process of transformation that happens by the power of his spirit in us. It is slow and steady progress toward glory. Maturing. Being clothed in Christ. Growing up. God's image in us being restored. We are being made new until that work is complete. Now here's the hard thing. And what I'm about to say is core to our reformed tradition and belief. There is no salvation without sanctification. It is a heresy to believe that we can go from justification to glorification and skip the growing process in between. No one goes from being an infant to being fully mature adult overnight. (laughs) There's growth and development and change along the way. And if we are in Christ, we are being changed from the inside out. 
That is the life of a disciple. That is what it means to be a Christian. So again, I ask, does this describe your faith in Jesus? Do you truly trust him? Are you willing to obey him? And I know these are hard questions. And I really want to encourage you to take them seriously because the truth is, and hear everything I'm about to say, the truth is there is no wrong answer. There's only the truth. And if your answer is no, if this does not describe your relationship with Jesus, y'all, there, there is still really good news. Today is the opportunity for that justification to begin. Some have been in churches their entire lives and have never really known the love of God. If the answer is no, there is good news. And there are people here who love you, who love God and are being loved by God. And the reason we're here is to help show you the way. So I really want to encourage you, and I know it's a lot to do today. I'm not gonna go old school Baptist on you. We'll do this after the service. <laughs> But when the service is over, instead of going out in the narthex and shaking your hand, Sabrina and I are gonna stay right here. And it's not that only Sabrina and I can do this. Any disciple of Jesus can help another person find the love of Christ. But I'm in charge of our schedules, so I'm gonna say that we're gonna stay. And if you just wanna talk, if you wanna wrestle, if you wanna work through some of this, just come and talk to us. And if that's not today, then some other time. But please reach out and let us know. We ask these questions of ourselves and we ask them of each other because we are called to grow up together. We're not alone. Paul's writing to the justified, to those who will one day be glorified and he's just explaining the process of being sanctified. And he's asking us to take the next right step. Amen? Let's pray. Father, that's a heavy, it's a heavy question to ask. Um, to ask of ourselves, to encourage one another to ask. What is the depth of our relationship with you? Do we truly trust you? Are we ready to obey you? Are we being transformed by you? But God, I pray that in the safety of this family and this community that you would make us brave to ask that question and give an honest answer. Because you have given your church to the world as a gift. And you equip us and empower us to do everything you called us to do. But before we can do that, we must be yours. So I pray that you would lovingly guide us, hold us as we wrestle with those questions. Be present with us moving forward. Show us the lives that you created us to live and help us to be trusting and obedient to that life. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.